with us today or haven't been here, we're in the middle of a series that we've called Redefined. And Redefined is a book by Arden Bevere that really talks about knowing our identity in Christ, knowing who we are, and then living from that identity. And last week we talked about being a hopeful people and learning how to trust the process. Um, so that in Romans chapter 5, last week we talked about how suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Most of us would rather have a prayer line. I need hope. So, uh, Pastor Tom, just bring us all up front, lay hands on us. Oh, may you overflow with hope by the power of your spirit. Yes. And we've been taught many times that Jesus suffered so we wouldn't have to. And I get what that line means because Jesus paid a, a price that you and I could never pay. But Jesus didn't suffer so we wouldn't have to because the Bible calls us to suffering. The Bible calls us to lay down our lives, and it's actually through suffering and through perseverance that we develop character, and then that character produces hope in our, our lives and in our hearts. And so um, last that was last week, and against all hope, we're going to keep hoping, and I hope that that you know ministered in your heart today. And I'm going to switch to this handout, because whatever is clicking is just going to drive us all nuts. So, Or maybe it will just drive me nuts, and it won't drive you nuts at all, so... But I'm going to switch it anyway so that I don't go nuts because I'm already on that path and I don't want to go all the way. And so today, today's title is called Entitled. Entitled. And um, in some ways, I've been looking forward to this chapter. And in some ways, I've been dreading this chapter. And ironically, we're in a very small room and uh, where you're going to maybe be able to see the whites of my eyes as we go through this. And I want to I want to just say from the beginning, um, please give grace as I share things today, and don't misinterpret the things that I say. It's easy for us to sit in this room, and as Arden talks about in the chapter, this generation of young people, and he talks about how they're called entitled because of a lack of commitment and a lack of work ethic, and it's easy for some of us to sit here and say, oh yeah, that's right, those people are so entitled. There's a danger for every single one of us in this room that that entitlement, that that arrogance, can creep into our hearts. The type of culture that we are trying to create in Restoration Church, a table culture, where everyone comes to the table and everybody gets a seat and everybody gets a voice and everybody gets to grow in their identity and their gifting and their calling, that actually is a great culture, but it is also the same culture that actually grows arrogance and entitlement. And so today I just want to talk to us about the warning signs. Um, I would guess every single one of us in this room has an area of our lives that the Holy Spirit would want to say, hey, watch, be careful, don't go down this path. Uh, my claim is not to say that any of us today are entitled. That's actually not even my job. Um, as I went through and even began to put this into words, I began to pray and say, Oh, God, there's so much arrogance and entitlement in my own life that I'm not even aware of. And so, Holy Spirit, help me. Um, the disciples, if you remember, uh, often argued about who was the greatest. And as Jesus was trying to create a culture among them of confidence, he wanted them to know who they were in him. He wanted them to exercise authority and his build his kingdom. Um, but it also created that entitlement 
culture among the disciples. And Jesus kept trying to point them back to humility. He kept trying to tell them, go low. Take the low seat. Don't exalt yourself. In fact, in the kingdom, if you exalt yourself, you're actually going to be humbled. And if you actually take the low seat, you enable God to exalt you. And so it's like suffering produces character, perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and then character produces hope. In the same way, when we walk through those moments of humility, that's what actually leads to promotion in the kingdom. And so sometimes we like to look around us, whether in work, in our workplace, or in the church, and we think that I'm not being promoted because of a person, rather than maybe I'm not being promoted because God knows my heart's not ready to be promoted. Maybe he knows that if I'm in that place, that there's some pride that needs to be chipped off of my life first. And so Arden gives us the quote from the end of the chapter, and usually we end with this. We're going to start with it today. We are a grateful people, not an entitled people. We know God has called us, and the world, that should say world, yours does say world, praise the Lord, needs us. We are patient. <laughs> I learned a few weeks ago that there were some inappropriate words up on the screen, so thank you all for not like telling me about them. Um, but believe me, the, the tech team told me. We are patient. And some of you now need to go back and watch the previous weeks to find out what was up there. <laughs> we are patient in the process and committed to the future. The idea of being entitled is the, the sense of being owed something or the excessive belief that I have a right to something, an excessive belief that I have that the right to it. And as I said, Arden talks about how that shows up in our culture today in a, in a generation of young people that lack commitment, that lack worth ethic. The massive credit card debt also speaks to this because, I mean, after all, we're entitled to a nice house. We're entitled to a nice car. We're entitled, and so we... We constantly purchase things that we cannot afford. I'm entitled to have the newest phone. I'm entitled to, and we would never use the word entitled, but that's how it creeps into our lives. And we want to give our kids better than we had, and so we buy it on credit, and we, we want to protect them from anything, and so we try to fight their battles for them, and we, we try to make the teacher the enemy and the coach the enemy, and all of these people in their lives are the enemy, and we've become helicopter parents protecting our children from everything, and what we've taught them is they don't need to suffer. They don't need to perseverance. They have a right to whatever it is that they want, and we give out participation trophies, and they're, everybody's a winner, and you don't need to work hard. And so we've created this culture that talks a lot about rights and privilege, but not a lot about responsibility. And it would be easy for us to, to look down on a generation, and we're not going to do that, because those of us that are from a different generation, where maybe we have a, a high work ethic, and we think, well, I've worked hard, and this young generation needs to work hard like I did, like my grandfather did, and like we need to work hard. Let me read Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because that's a breeding ground for pride that the, the, the Lord tried to help his people with in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. And so I understand that we have to work hard. The Bible tells us if you don't work, you don't eat. You've got to work. You've got to carry your weight. Um, but it's also that balance between 
understanding that it's still a grace from him, even though I've worked hard to get it and making sure that we walk that out in our lives. And so rather than look for entitlement in others, my hope is that every single one of us gives the Holy Spirit a chance to just show us areas of entitlement that works in our own hearts. And whether that's entitlement in your workplace, entitlement in the church, entitlement in our culture at large, whatever that might be. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, Isaiah has been called to prophesy to the people of Israel. And uh, he's actually told that he's going to prophesy and no one's going to listen. I don't know if you want that job or not. But imagine God calling you to be a pastor or a missionary somewhere, and I want you to go, and for 40 years you're going to teach and preach, and not one person's going to get converted. Anybody want to sign up for that job? <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, but before all that happens, he brings him into this vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. There's that choice. High and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The angels that were in his presence were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now, you got to understand, in literature, um, the angels were not saying holy, holy, holy. That's actually how we would do that is we would bold type that, underline it, and exclamation point it. Holy. We wouldn't say it three times. So they're not, they're saying holy so loud that the Hebrew writers wrote it three times to help us understand how emphasized that is. So they don't sing holy, holy, holy. They sing holy, and they sing it really loud. Okay. In fact, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Okay, so that's where Isaiah is. And then look what happens. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I would propose to us today that it is in the presence of God where we recognize how the people around us have affected us. It's easy for us to get into the presence of the Lord and say, oh, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. But so often it's easy for us to get caught up in it and to become a people, a person of unclean lips in a people of unclean lips. There seems to be an increase of arrogance and entitlement in our nation, and it's not just among unbelievers. It seems to be increasing in our church, not our church, but the church. Well, maybe our church, maybe our lives, maybe our house. And I think we need to get better at quieting ourselves before the Lord in the midst of all of the noise in our culture and ask him, hey, what is growing in my garden? See, I'm not responsible for what grows in anyone else's garden. I mean, I'm, I may, as a pastor or as a believer who's a friend with someone, I may come and we may have a conversation about what I see growing in your garden, um, but it's totally on you, not on me. I am responsible for what is growing in my garden. And so I can't stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and say, well, you know, my spouse or, well, my kids or, well, my mayor or, well, my, pe my boss or, well, you know, the people in my congregation. I mean, I am responsible for what grows in my garden. And let me just say, if we spend three hours a day watching TV, watching the news, scrolling social media, and we spend about three minutes in the word and in the presence of the Lord, what do you think is going to grow in our garden? 
we as a culture don't know how to quiet ourselves before the Lord. We just assume we're right. I'm right in this whatever it is, whether it's in the workplace. I'm right. My boss is wrong. I'm right. My parents are wrong. I'm right. My kids are wrong. I'm right. Everyone else is wrong. And we really don't quiet ourselves before the Lord and make sure that what's opposing us is not the devil. James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud (laughs) but gives grace to the humble. And so sometimes we might actually think Satan is opposing us, but if we quiet ourselves enough, we might find out that God's trying to strip away some pride somewhere in our hearts, and it's not the devil opposing me. Maybe it's God opposing me. And if he does it, can I tell you, if God opposes you, it is not for your destruction. It is for our discipline. He wants to cause us to grow. And so as we've talked about over the week, God transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. And we we come into this kingdom and we live in this culture where we talk a lot about rights and privileges. And we talk about free speech, right? In America, we've got free speech. It's a free country. And I'm, I'm worried that as Christians, we hide behind free speech and we criticize, condemn, and put down people. We become cynical. We become mocking. We label. We're quick to rush into judgment. And we should be very careful to rush into judgment because God says the same standard that we use for judgment is actually what he's going to use to judge us. And if you take a step back and just think, how, how have I judged my spouse this week? How have I judged my kids this week? How have I judged my, my boss this week? How have I judged my, our president this week? How have I judged anything? And then is that the standard I want God to use for me on judgment day? And I think sometimes if we just quiet ourselves, because I'm all for free speech and I'm all for freedoms, but I believe freedoms should be still inside of values. Values, not world values, kingdom values, honor, and respect, and dignity, even for those that I disagree with. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, I have the right to do anything. Not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. Not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. I am not saying today that we should not promote values, that we should not stand for what is right. But I am, I mean, the Apostle Paul taught us You know, he used his rights and privileges as a citizen to avoid a beating. Seems like a good idea to me, right? He used his rights and privileges to appeal to Caesar. But I think every time that we feel like we should appeal to our rights and privileges, I think sometimes maybe God would want us to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And I say that because of our example. Philippians chapter 2, our example, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests. Now, do you think that, that Paul is, is talking about, you know, just our friends, the guys in our circle? I mean, just the people that don't annoy us or rub us the wrong way? I don't know. Let's keep reading and find out. Take an interest in others, too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. 
Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And you and I know that from that cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And I think we would agree with Jesus there that sinners don't know what they're doing. But I don't know that we would exercise the same mercy and compassion that Jesus did. Sometimes it's easy to become cynical and jaded and angry. My boss, man, he just is such an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. I don't even know how he, I know how he got this job because he's related to someone. By the way, if I step on your toes at all, no one talk to me before the sermon. So if you've said any of these things about your spouse or your boss this week, um, just take it from the Lord. And, and I may have said some of those things this week. I don't sit here because I've worked all this out in my life. I sit here because I look at God's word, and man, it cuts. And I just wonder, how do we apply this to our lives? Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 more about this example. God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. So if we are facing unjust treatment, you and I need to get quiet enough to make sure that we know what his will is. And he has got a good, pleasing, and perfect will. And sometimes the unjust treatment that I am about to face or I am facing is actually God using it for my good. And if I fight against it, I may be fighting against the very thing God wants to do to mold my character so that he can promote me in the kingdom. If you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. I don't know, do I have the type of faith that can leave it in the hands of God, or do I need to speak up for myself every single time? In James chapter 1, James cautions us that everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And it's so hard because Jesus, there's that one instance where he fashioned a whip out of cords and he drove the money changers out of the temple. And where do we put that into context? I mean, even Jesus got righteously anger. And I know that most of us would like to think that our anger in those moments is also righteous anger. But if we're not quick to listen and slow to speak, and slow to become angry, we could rush into unrighteous anger and fool ourselves into thinking that it, it is righteous because it looks righteous. And we might even get other people to agree with us and stand up for us. When we sit at the table with those we disagree with, do we ask questions? Or do we just assume we're right and we present our point of view right after they're done talking. I mean, do we feel like it's our calling in this world to be the truth presenters to everyone? Or do we sit at the table and try to figure out where's this person even coming from before I make a decision about 
what side of the aisle or what side of the, the position or what side of the denomination they're even on. And sometimes we're just quick to put people in these places and we don't listen. We don't ask questions. We're not slow. And I just want to remind us, the Bible says be slow. And so three things that we need to choose, not pray for. We need to choose humility. We need to choose humility. Don't, don't pray, oh, Lord, help me to be humble. <laughs> He's already helping you to be humble. He's put a spirit in you. you. We need to choose to humble ourselves. The Bible doesn't say pray for yourself to be humble. <laughs> in fact, it says if you won't humble yourself, I will help humble you because I want you <laughs> to be humble. <laughs> but that's the whole God opposed to the proud thing. But humility is about dependency. And in the book of 1 Samuel, I'm going to give you stuff that you can look up later. We're not going to have time to read it. 1 Samuel 15 through 31, David is called a man after God's own heart. And the interesting thing about David is David is anointed to be king while Saul is still king. And David um, goes through a season where Saul is trying to kill him, and he's pursuing him, and David's on the run. I don't know about you, but if you were ever anointed, so you get a word from the Lord that you're going to be promoted at work, and you actually get steps backwards. You actually have people that try to get you fired. That's what David's experiencing. He's been anointed to be king, but the king is actually out to get him. And two times, he has an opportunity to kill King Saul, and Joab, who's going to come back later, tells him, God has delivered him into your hands. He's in this deep sleep. I mean, it's clearly God. Come on, run him through. Kill him. And David says, no, 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 no. Because if you promote yourself, you're also going to have to keep yourself. If you allow the Lord to promote you and trust the process, because sometimes you're going to run for your life. And we have got to get better at asking the question, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? When you get that medical diagnosis, when something goes wrong at work, whenever there's something, when you that frustration rises up, just stop. Say, God, what are you doing? This unjust treatment that I'm going through, are you using it before I just dive headlong into whatever um, my reaction would be? We've become a culture that now is obsessed with being right. And we all want to be right, just like the apostles and so in Matthew 26, they come to the end of it, and they still haven't learned this humility thing. And in fact, Jesus confuses them, and he tells them to bring swords. <laughs> bring some swords. And then in Matthew 26, 52, put away your sword. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, come on, like, bring my sword, but now you're telling me to put it away? I don't understand that. There's so much I don't understand about the Bible. Because those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? So we've got to choose humility. We've got to choose dependency. We've got to choose to trust the process, and we've got to quiet ourselves and say, God, I think that my, myself wants to protect myself, but you tell me, what are you doing here? How do I respond right now? The second thing we need to choose is contentment or gratefulness, contentment or gratefulness. Back to King David. David, of course, becomes king. But in 2 Samuel chapter 13 through 19, his son Absalom steals the heart of the people and he overthrows David. And David's Joab again is telling him, come on, you, you fight. But David flees. David leaves the castle. He says, you know what? 
far be it from me. If God is finished with me on the throne, I'm done. I'll walk away. I am content for just me and him. And so let the Lord judge. And David flees. A lot of people see that as cowardice. But remember, David is a man after God's own heart. And even as he's fleeing, there's a man that starts throwing stones at him <laughs> and cursing him. And again, Joab, God love Joab. <laughs> he's like, he's so protecting David. J- let me kill him. Let me kill him. And in fact, when Absalom dies and David comes back, they pass that man again. And Joab is like, he was wrong. Let me kill him. And David's always like, no, what are you doing? A man after God's own heart does not want to kill his enemies. He wants to redeem his enemies. So David always says, leave him alone. And so when it comes to this idea of knowing our place as sons and daughters, and, and yet we also have to know our place as servants. I mean, I'm a son of God. He, I have an identity in him. He want, he's given me authority on earth. I mean, there, yeah, all of those things are true. But in Luke chapter 17, the apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. And he says this. Again, if we talked about this last week, if you have faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. It's not always about our faith. Then Jesus goes right into this. When a servant comes in from plowing and taking care of sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No, he says, prepare my meal, put on your apron, and serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. And does the master of the servant does thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we're unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. So they're like, increase our faith. And Jesus is like, it's not really about your faith, it's about your pride. It's about your, your identity and knowing that when, you know, you don't just get to exalt yourself. And sometimes I'm going to take you through seasons that look like steps backwards. That looks like your enemy is about to destroy you. But the question is, will you serve me? Will you serve my purposes? Will you, like Jesus prayed in the garden, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. How many of us are really willing to die for our enemies? How many of us are willing to be inconvenienced for our enemies? Might be a better question. We've got to come to that place where we trust (laughs) That God is in control of the outcome. He promotes. He removes. I can trust the process. But again, it's quieting ourselves before him so that we can know what's in his heart. The last thing that we need to cultivate is connectedness. Connectedness. And with this, I've actually said we've got to cultivate connectedness and correctiveness. (laughs) Just because, you know, it seemed nice. It flowed together. But the question of, am I a teachable person? Back to the story of David. David, of course, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, um, he has sinned with Bathsheba, and he has killed Uriah, Bathsheba's wife. And Nathan the prophet comes, tells him a story about a guy who has lots of lambs, uh, lots of sheep. And one of, one of his guests come from a faraway place, and rather than killing one of his sheep, he goes to his neighbor's house, and his neighbor only has one, one little lamb that he loves and treasures. And he takes that lamb, and he he kills it, and he feeds his friend. And of course, we know David like, righteous anger. Only Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man. That story <laughs> reminds me 
that um, if can you put up the screen of David and Nathan and just those if you want to write them down, that's second Samuel chapter 12. Um, he says to David, you're the man. And so whenever righteous anger rises in my heart, I really want to stop and say, God, am I the guilty one here? Is there I, am I being angry because of something that's in my own heart? Because I have found maybe this isn't true for you. But the, the flaws and the sins that I see in others uh, are usually the ones that are in my own life. That's why I recognize them so well in others. <laughs> but that might just be for me. Be careful. But David repents, man after God's own heart. But it's easy to repent when it's Nathan the prophet, because Nathan the prophet is a good guy. What about that Joab? <laughs> in the story, First Chronicles chapter 21, uh, David is taking a census, and Joab tries to stop him about the only thing I can find in the Bible that Joab gets right. <laughs> and so for I, I don't have time to go into why a census would be wrong and just know it is that David shouldn't have done this. And Joab recognizes it, and David doesn't. And so the scripture says the king overruled him. See, because what happens, uh, you know, we can, all be, we can all be corrected by a Nathan. I mean, he's the guy that he's in the word. He's, he's a good guy. I mean, he's a nice guy. Uh, he's, he's a prophet of the Lord. I mean, we, but can we be corrected by Joab? Because the problem is Joab is right in this situation, and David overrules him and does it anyway, and 70,000 people are killed. Because David wouldn't be taught by the guy that was usually wrong. There's something there that we need to remember. See, when we think of the fivefold ministry and we think of coming to the table with people who disagree with us um, in our culture what we think is okay so there's the the apostle's going to have one viewpoint the prophet's going to have one viewpoint the evangelist is going to have another viewpoint the teacher's going to have another viewpoint and then um, the one i forgot is going to have uh, a pastor <laughs> he's going to have a different viewpoint and so they're all going to present their viewpoints and then we're going to vote on who's the best which one do we like the best but what if we're actually supposed to listen to each other well enough that we come up with a whole different viewpoint because of the five things that are brought to the table. We live in this culture today in the church world of, and I think, I think there's a demonic influence when we try to have overly correct doctrine. I'm all for correct doctrine. I'm all for studying the scripture. But I think we can come to a place where we become very dismissive of the people who disagree with us, um, especially in Pentecostal circles, because, I mean, after all, we are the full gospel. As if other people aren't. I mean, we are spirit-filled, so I'm not going to listen to that teacher because that teacher couldn't have anything to teach me because I'm spirit-filled and I'm a prophet. Ouch. I think we could learn from peop even people who get it wrong most of the time. If we just quiet ourselves and let the Lord teach us. Here's a litmus test that I want to give you, and then we're going we're gonna to take communion, and then we're just going to be quiet and let the Lord speak. In Philippians chapter 2, look at this. It says, do everything without grumbling or complaining, and then you will shine like stars. Everyone hates that verse. Let's just be honest. Um, but let me ask you this. When is the last time 
that someone who has authority over you, whether that's a boss or a parent or a coach or a teacher or any leader, they asked you for something that you disagreed with personally. It wasn't a sin. It wasn't even a hardship. It maybe was an inconvenience. It was a non-preference. And you actually just submitted to it without grumbling or complaining, even under your breath. If you can't think of one, you might want to ask the Lord to show you some areas of entitlement in your heart. We live in a culture now where we question everything. And if I disagree with my teacher, if I disagree with this person, if I disagree with that person, it doesn't even have to be a sin issue anymore. It's just it's not my preference, and so it's my right to grumble and complain about it. But sometimes it's just my right to submit to it. Because maybe that unruly boss is going to be won over by my submitted heart and attitude more so than my grumbling and complaining. See why I don't want to preach this? Because, you know, and you're all so close. I just feel like the walls are closing in on us right now. <laughs> but here's the thing. When we come to the Lord's table, and every one of you should have had communion on your, your chair when you came in today. The Lord's table is like, um, is a great, I mean, this is humility, 101. This is dependence, 101. This is gratefulness. I have received something that I do not deserve, and anything else I get in my life is now the cherry on top. And yet, in this is also connectedness. Because the Apostle Paul, when he's talking to the Corinthian church about 1 Corinthians 11, and of all of the things in 1 Corinthians that he says to them, the sexual immorality that's going on in their church, the lawsuits that's going on in their church, the thing that he is the most upset and has the harshest words for is the level of connectedness in the body. The way you are just mistreating one another, that's just not okay. Because this table is all about mercy, and it, you're not showing it to one another. You're not preferring one another. So he's really harsh. And so when we talk about choosing humility and choosing gratefulness and contentment and choosing that connectedness, and it even goes, I believe, beyond our church. It should go beyond our denomination. Am I connected to the body of Christ even beyond my, my group, whatever my group is? Whatever my truth is. I don't know if you know this or not, but the majority of God's church actually lives outside of the borders of America. The overwhelming majority of the body of Christ worldwide isn't even American. Am I connected to the body of Christ beyond myself or am i letting pride and entitlement creep in i'd encourage you revelation chapter 3 verses 14 through 22 i didn't put it up on the screen but this is the church in laodicea and jesus says to this church i stand at the door and knock and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door i will come in and i will eat with them and now we have used that verse many of evangelists to when we come to the sinner's prayer and we're going to call people to repentance, we're like, the Lord is standing at your door knocking. But this is a church that he's standing at the door knocking. It's a church that has become self-sufficient. It's a church that says, I, I, I don't need anything. I'm right. I'm perfect. And he actually says, no, you're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But I'm standing at the door knocking. And if you open, if you hear my voice, 
I pray that today we hear his voice. And so we're going to take literally five minutes. Because one of the things I don't think we do well as a culture is quiet ourselves before the Lord. At least I don't. I mean, when's the last time you just took five minutes and you just, no music, no qua- no noise. We're going to play some piano music because it'll just keep you from being distracted by all the other sounds. But all of the other noises and you just say, God, where do I need to grow in humility? Expose pride in my heart. Where do I need to grow in contentment? Is there any place that there's greed or this attitude of I'm being owed something? Where do I need to grow in connectedness? Am I correctable? Do I need to be slower to speak? Do I need to listen more? Lord, what are you doing? If there's a situation in your life, whether it's at work or at home, or you just, rather than focusing on what your spouse needs to do or your kids need to do or your boss needs to do or your coworkers need to do, just say, Lord, what do I need to do today? What, what difference can I make in my attitude, in my responses? Because here's what I believe. God is never up in heaven wringing his hands looking for a plan B, ever, ever. And I, I know that sometimes in my life something happens, whether at work or at church or at home or in my personal life, and I react as if God is in heaven wringing his hands looking for a plan B. But if I would stop in that moment and remember, he's got this. And I would just say, Lord, what are you doing here? I think I would save myself and others a whole lot of pain. So here's what I want us to do. I'm going to read Psalm 27. And then we're going to partake of the communion elements. And we're going to remember the sacrifice that the Lord made for us when he died, when he gave his life. And then I want you to take just five minutes and let the Lord speak to your heart about what he maybe wants to show you, say. And I'd encourage you to journal it, write it down, come back to it later. But I want to read to you from Psalm 27 as kind of the backdrop for our communion today. We're remembering the body and the blood of the Lord that he willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice for us so that we could have relationship with the Father, we could have forgiveness of sins, we could have healing in our physical bodies. Psalm 27 says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. So why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections, meditating in his temple. For he will conceal me there when trouble comes. He will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At his sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. Hear me as I pray, O Lord. Be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. Do not turn your back on me. 
Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Do not leave me now. Don't abandon me, O God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the right path, for my enemies are waiting for me. Do not let me fall into their hands, for they accuse me of things I've never done. With every breath they threaten me with violence. Yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I'm here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Let's partake of those elements, and then let's just wait in His presence and let Him speak.
is for you today. Would you put your hand over your heart? So, Father, today we are grateful. We're grateful for your discipline in our lives. And Holy Spirit, as we have prayed from the outset of this service, as you search our hearts, as you know us, as you test us, see if there's anything in us that offends you. And lead us in the everlasting path. Help us this week as we choose humility, as we choose contentment and gratefulness, as we choose connectedness. Help us to be slow to speak. Help us to be quick to listen. Help us to choose to step aside even from the difficult moments of our day and hear your voice. We know that you are always calling us to come aside to you. And we know that your word promises that you will protect us in your sanctuary. So help us to choose it. Help us to choose to enter that place of protection, that place of safety, that place, God, where we know your will, your responses, your heart for everything that we face, whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our, our personal friendships, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's in the communities that we live in, whether it's in this nation, God, whether it's in this world, we know that you have a plan and we know that you have a purpose. And so, Holy Spirit, help us to cultivate a listening ear this week. Help us to hear what your spirit is saying to your church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for for doing that. I don't know, maybe five minutes of solitude is a good place to start. And so um, 